Acts 22, verses 1 through 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law, our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest, the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the high priest and the whole council of elders. Oh, I think I just read that, sorry. <laughs> From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them into the bonds of Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, you receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away from the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. This is God's word. Please remain standing and join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you again for the service that we have today, Lord. I thank you for your word and for your people, God, who are here. We can fellowship and learn and grow in you. Pray that uh, you keep us focused this morning, Lord, and you just open our hearts and our minds and ears to what you have to tell us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's so good to see everyone this morning. God bless you. We approach a uh, um, passage of scripture that um, is quite lengthy. It's sometimes difficult to preach through these through these uh, narratives and acts because they're so long. A lot of the context actually for this passage is in chapter 21. And we approach the final chapters of the book of Acts. Um, we, we observe a lot of opposition, incredible trial that Paul faces. Some people actually call the last seven chapters of Acts um, Paul's suffering ministry because if you notice the, the, really the end of Acts 
It's just one harrowing event after another, one angry mob after another, one prison after another. In, in good grief, I mean, Paul is just um, suffering a great deal of suffering, isn't he? <laughs> and um, it's just very interesting to note that. We already left Paul in Acts chapter 16, beaten up, imprisoned, um, as a first example of this, tortured even. And here again, Paul finds himself in imminent danger. You say, well, I don't really see that in the text we just read. Well, chapter 21 sets the context for, for chapter 22. And, and if you recall, last week, we left Paul with the Ephesians, the elders, and he was leaving for Jerusalem. And if you remember, he said, what awaits me, for me, if, what awaits me in Jerusalem is suffering. Suffering, imprisonment, all these different things. And upon his arrival... Paul enters the temple. This is kind of the context of the the lengthy speech that you just heard that he's giving um, to many people who really wanted to end his life. He goes to Jerusalem. He enters the temple. And he basically enraged the Jewish religious sensibilities. It was well known that Paul had preached that the Mosaic ceremonial law could make no one clean. So they didn't like this. Um, that's maybe another sermon for another time, but this is what he preached. He wasn't, it's important to note that Paul wasn't preaching um, a, a different religion from Judaism. Paul was a faithful Jew, and because Paul was a faithful Jew, he believed in Jesus Christ the Messiah, right? So that was the, the difficult part for many Jewish people at the time to understand, but they didn't like him so much because he was basically saying that you didn't need the Mosaic ceremonial law to make yourself pure, to make yourself clean, to be rid of sin. No one can do this this way. To add insult to injury, you really want to tick him off. This is what else he did. He said that Gentiles were co-heirs with believing Jews. And likewise, they didn't need to become culturally Jewish to be purified from their sin. So in other words, they wouldn't have to be circumcised. They wouldn't have to follow Mosaic law as well, at least not the religious law. So this just made them mad. It it enraged their religious sensibilities. So he goes into the temple. A crowd forms. They recognize him. They beat him up. And they they attempt to drag him to his death. They want to rip this guy limb from limb. In chapter 21, verses 30 through 31, it says that the whole town was aroused by Paul's presence. Isn't that interesting? The whole town was aroused. And people from all directions... We're rushing in to get Paul. <laughs> Not a good day. <laughs> finally, finally, there's this mob that's trying to really tear him apart. Ro- the Roman authorities show up, and they basically rescue Paul. We read, when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried away by this. The, the soldiers literally had to pick him up over their heads and get him out of there. This is chapter 21, verses 35. Out of a sort of uh, desperation, the soldiers um, arrest Paul and and basically hold him in their custody, not even really knowing why. But it's remarkable to see Paul suddenly... Now imagine this, chapter 21, we didn't really see this scene, but just picture what I just described. Paul enters into the temple, angry mob, rip him limb from limb, there's all this chaos and commotion. The cops basically have to come in, pick him up over his head, and rush him out of there so they don't kill the guy. And then all of a sudden in chapter 22, everyone's listening to him quietly. <laughs> it's incredible. How on earth did Paul summons the poise 
and the courage and the wisdom to do this, to pull this off. Why would he do this? You know, if it were me, I would say, I'm an innocent man, Romans. Can you just go in and obliterate them, arrest them all? I didn't even do anything, right? Like, that guy hit me, that guy dragged me, right? I saw you were all there, I have witnesses. That, that's what Kyle DeGagney would do. And don't laugh at me, you'd do the same thing, wouldn't you? <laughs> so how, but why would he do this? Why would he go back to them and appeal to them, preach the gospel to them? I think many of us, even with our light affliction, just sort of give up and get passive, don't we? We don't get persecuted like this for our faith in our culture, but we still, I guess, endure a measure of irritant, like irritating type of situations where you know, people kind of think we're silly for believing what we believe, or they might make fun of us or give us a hard time. Or, you know, that's kind of light affliction. And even with that, sometimes we just sort of say, you know what, I'm just going to, I don't want to upset the apple cart anymore. I just kind of want to love Jesus in my own private way. And we just, we give up, but not Paul. Paul is saying the thing to them that he knows will tick them off. (laughs) But he says it anyway, because the gospel was at stake and their soul was at stake. So, but many of us, this light affliction, we just kind of sort of give up and get passive. And we, oh, and we're good. We have like really slick ways of making justifications for ourselves. Like we say things like, well, you know, I let my life speak the gospel, <laughs> not my words. Right? Your life should speak the gospel. I, I kind of like that. I've heard that statement. I kind of like it. But our words should speak the gospel too. Paul didn't do this. Paul was brave. He had courage. And I want to be brave like him. Do you want to be brave like Paul? I mean, a man who had been beaten up many times and still loved the people beating him up. Still had the courage to go for it anyway. By the way, at the end of his life, he had his head cut off. Gosh, I want to love Jesus that much. I want to, I want to love people that much. I want to love the gospel that much. Listen to um, about Polycarp was, uh, I, I believe, a disciple of the Apostle John. The early church fathers were basically the guys who were discipled by the apostles. Imagine that. That's pretty cool. Um, and we learn about a lot of these guys from, you know, early church history. There's a great little book called Eusebius Ecclesiastical History of the Church. It was written in about 300 A.D. And it, and it records the, the way in which a lot of the apostles actually died. We don't have that in the book of Acts. Some of Acts tells us. But many of the apostles, we don't really know what happened to them outside of the Bible. Eusebius, this um, brilliant little work, records all that. And he records about how Polycarp, The apostle of John was martyred, um, but martyred with courage, martyred with joy. When he was brought to a great assembly for his execution, there was a governor basically begging him to renounce Christ, to revile Jesus. Now keep in mind, hundreds of Christians in the same arena had been eaten by lions before him. And they finally get Polycarp. He's in his 80s. He's a very old man. And he's about to have a lion jump on his back. And, he sa- and the governor sees this fragile, brittle old man and says, please just revile Christ. Because if you don't do it, i got to kill you. So in full knowledge of the butchery that many brave Christians endured, he replies to the governor, 80 and 6 years have I served him, and he never did me wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king that saved me? We have no reason to repent from better to worse. 
See what he's saying there? So I'm not repenting of Jesus for what you're offering me. There's no reason to repent from better. You threaten fire that burns for a moment and is soon extinguished, for you know nothing of the judgment to come. Hear my free confession. I am a Christian. They stripped him naked. 80-year-old 80, 80 man, 86-year-old, stripped him naked, placed him on a pile of logs. And when he prayed, he said this before they lit the fire. Father, I bless thee to have a share unto the resurrection of life, both of the soul and the body and the incorruptible joy of the spirit. And those were his last words. They lit the fire. They kindled that great inferno with his body. And Polycarp's life ended. Friends, the gospel can give you great courage to do amazing things, to make amazing sacrifices. And I just kind of wonder what would I do if I was ever put in a situation like that. I want to demonstrate how the gospel gives us courage, that gives us courage this morning by looking at Paul's life in this situation, showing his poise, who he was, and who he is. And those are the three ways how we can show how God, the gospel can give us joyful courage, courage through joy. We're going to look at Paul's poise under pressure. We're going to look at who he was, and we're going to look at who he is. Those three things are what gave him power. Those, those three things are what gave him courage. So let's look at his poise under pressure. You recall in, in Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders. You're going to remember this from last week. You remember what he said. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, but I do know this. <laughs> you kind of wish verse 23 says, when I get there, there'll be big piles of money waiting for me, and everyone will be clapping for me, and so happy that I'm there. No, in verse 23 he says, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. I know that my life, for the rest of it, is going to have great pain and trouble. Wow. <laughs> Man, I want my best life now. I don't want that. Paul knew bef but before he even left for Jerusalem what faced him. Sooner rather than later, Paul's rushed, beaten, and arrested. It just kind of happened pretty quick. God, you know, I thought you will would give me at least a week or something, you know, like before I got beaten up. But just in a few moments, and, and just in a few moments after this, this fiasco, Paul transforms his situation from being the object of everyone's violent aggression to, to the object of everyone's silent attention. Now let's see how he did that. Chapter 21 reads this, Paul was calm, he had poise. In chapter 21, it says, Paul asked the commander, may I say something to you? So after he gets carried away, after he's getting beaten up, he's with the commander and he says, may I say something to you? And the commander replied, do you speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian? So apparently he started speaking the commander's language, speaking Greek. He says, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt? There was an Egyptian, basically assassin, a false prophet, who, who deceived, according to Josephus, 30,000 people um, to, to basically go to their deaths. But the Egyptian escaped. They thought he was him. Okay, that was the context. This Roman thought he was that guy. He thought he was this Egyptian false prophet that led to the death of 30,000 Jews. And he, they, they just assumed... 
That's why these guys want to tear his limbs off. So let, let's get him out of here. But he realizes, no, that, that um, he's not the Egyptian. Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus, no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd, and they were all silent. Amazing. Now let's, let's unpack this a little bit. From a violent frenzy to a silent interest. Paul is both brilliant in handling these people, diffusing them with incredible calm, and after Paul was rushed out by the soldiers, he quickly gets to work. He doesn't let any time go by. He says, I need to speak to those people. I need to convince these soldiers very quickly that I'm not a nut, I'm not a maniac, and that I need to address the crowd. So he addresses the commander in Greek, telling him that he's from Tarsus. So he's immediately impressed. He's speaking different languages. He's educated. He's not just some uneducated, violent troublemaker. So he starts to realize this guy's from Tarsus. He's educated. He's probably maybe used to be wealthy of nobility, something like that. The commander's doing the math, and he says, this guy is not the guy who I thought he was. This guy's important, right? But then, so, so he wins the approval of the commander. Now he's got to win the approval of the crowd. So he stands up. The Bible says he motions to the crowd, and he speaks Aramaic to them. And Aramaic, that's important because all of the Jews knew Aramaic. Kind of imagine like in today's world, if you go to a foreign country, a common language is English. You know, so if you go to um, um, Russia or also all sorts of different places in the world, they have their own native language, but a common language is English. It's very often a common language. So if you don't know their language, you can speak a different one, you see? And they'll, th then they'll know that language. But what's interesting is when you speak English to somebody where English is a second language, what do, they na what do you naturally have to do? You kind of have to talk slower, right? You have to maybe just be considerate of that, that this isn't their primary language, so I'm going to talk slowly. I'm gonna so in other words, it, there is a very focused conversation happening between the two of you. And the, also, the other person really has to listen up, don't they? Because it's not their native language. They really have to pay attention. So it's actually quite brilliant that he starts speaking to them in Aramaic because it wasn't their, their native language. For a lot of them, it wasn't their native language. It was their common language, you see? So they just kind of had to stop, pay attention. You see how smart Paul is here? He's using a, a common language rather than their native language so that they'll listen to him. He not, not only that, though, he calls them fathers and brothers. That's very respectful for people who just tried to take his head off. Right? So now he's respecting them, he's talking their language, he sees that he's won the approval of the commanders, so they decide, let's listen to Paul, and everyone's quiet. I just think that's incredibly impressive. I probably would be shaking in my boots in the prison, say, please don't let them get me. <laughs> Not Paul. In a few moments, he diffuses a violent situation, and he could only do this um, he could only do this because he was not flattened with terror. He wasn't panicking. And he wasn't angry. He was brave. He was compassionate. He had courage. And his bravery gave him that poise that he needed instead of the panic that is likely to face probably most of us. He had poise instead of panic. And how? How did he have this? Well, I think it's very simple. Because Paul had trained his mind with the gospel. Paul was a gospel man. Paul knew and lived and breathed the gospel. 
He had one Lord. He did not worship other gods. He worshiped the God, and he knew what the gospel was. He exercised himself unto godliness. And because of that, he was ready. He was prepared. And had he not done this, he would have snapped. He would have. And it's this godlike exercise, the gospel that shores up the courage in us to do the right thing in the moment when we're tested. And how does the gospel do this? Well, that leads to our second point. The gospel reminds us who we are, or who we were, rather. The gospel reminded Paul who he was. In verses 1 through 5 of our text, Paul's basically describing who he was before he became a Christian. He gives the crowd a lesson of who he used to be before Jesus Christ came into his life. And he reminds the crowd that he actually had a lot in common with them. He said, I'm a Jew. He said, I'm edu- I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. So not only am I a Jew, but I'm a smart Jew. I'm smarter than all of you. Right? He didn't say that. That's kind of rude. But that's kind of what that meant. He said, you think you know the law? I know the law. I know it better than you. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. We learned that in another passage of Scripture where Paul says that, that I, I was a first-ranked Pharisee. Pharisees had to re- memorize the whole entire law. And you say, well, that's only the Ten Commandments, right? No. The law for a Jew was the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Imagine if I said, hey, refuge, your homework today, go home, memorize the first five books of the Bible. <laughs> Right? But this guy did it. He was a Pharisee. He per- and not only, you see, I'm smart, right? I know the law better than anyone in this room. I was also very zealous for the law. He said, I persecuted this way to the death. You know, a few years ago, I would have been in the crowd with you applauding your violence. I might have even started it. And you know that, by the way, because you know me. Listen to what he says next. He says, I used to bring these, these Christians in bonds to Jerusalem. Where is he? Where is he? He's in Jerusalem. They know who he is. They know that Paul used to bring Christians to prison in Jerusalem to arrest them. He says, I used to journey to Jerusalem, escorting Christians as prisoners. And he says, now I journey to Jerusalem as a prisoner of Jesus. Wow. So like this angry crowd, he was diligent before Jesus to obey the Old Testament law in the strictest sense and violently opposed people like who he became. So he understood them, probably better than anyone else. He was just like them at one point in his life. He was essentially looking into the mirror of his old self. Paul used to think that if he simply looked inward, that, that is, if he summons some kind of like moral willpower to follow the law, that he would be made right with God. And you say, wow, like this is very religious, you know, religious, you know, like I don't, I don't really fully understand this, you know, but, but don't you? Isn't, the, isn't the, this the same trap we all fall into? We, we all just kind of subtly think that if we keep our noses clean 
if we're just kind of good, we're not too bad, then God will be okay with us. That's kind of like the religious kind of sense in our culture, if you even are religious at all. It was very similar. But what he had ironically learned from all of his religious strivings was that he was blind, that he was clueless about the will of God, and that he was lost in sin. And here's how we know this. Because at his conversion, it's implied. At his conversion, we see, we, we see Paul being told, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Remember, he was stricken blind? That was a, vis- that was a, that was a symbol of his spiritual blindness. So before he came to know Christ as a devout religious Jew, he didn't know God at all. And friend, if you're trying to please God with your works, if you think that he loves you based on your actions, upon your good works, then you don't know him at all. You don't, you're separate from him. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. There are none good, not even one. Salvation comes simply by looking to Jesus Christ and trusting that he's the good one and that he died for me in my place. Amen? Brother Saul, receive your sight. You are blind. The God of our fathers appointed you, Saul, to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear hear a voice from his mouth, God's mouth himself. This was at his conversion. What does this imply? Well, before, before, as a devout religious Pharisee, he did not know the religion. He did not know the will of God. He did not see the righteous one, and he did not hear his voice. This is who he was. And finally, he's told, rise and be baptized. This is, again, Saul's conversion. Rise and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now, baptism is just symbolic of of our sins being washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the implication here is that he wasn't pure. But as a Pharisee, as a devout religious Jew, his sins remained. He needed to trust in Christ for them to be washed away. He was sinfully dirty, and he needed the purification of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for his own deliverance from his sin. And friends, that's all of us. This is who we were, too. Real courage, this is my point about courage in this, real courage can never come from within. Because when we look within, all we find is brokenness and sinfulness. Courage has to come from outside of us. It has to come from looking to someone with all the power. It has to come from hope. That's where we get it from. And that's where he got it from. Real real courage never comes by looking inwardly, but it comes by looking outwardly. When we look inward, we see condemnation, but when we look outward, we see rescue and hope in Christ. That's what gives you courage. But we're never going to look outward until we look inward, are we? Until we actually really look deep down in our guts and realize I am broken and lost and there's nothing. I have got no power. I need to be rescued. You see, that's when it starts. That's when we can begin to look to Jesus Christ and have hope in him and therefore have courage. It's quite common in our day to think we can gain courage by just believing in ourselves. Like, look inward. You got what it takes. You're strong. Just conquer your fear and just kind of white-knuckle it and get through it. Do it. Jump. Take the leap. And that's kind of how we, and sometimes it works. Sometimes we can do that and we actually kind of make a brave decision. But, the, the God, but, but real courage doesn't come from not having fear anymore. It, courage is doing the right thing in spite of the consequence, right? That's what it is. 
And we find that not, not by looking inwardly, by, but by looking outwardly. The gospel transforms, or at least should transform, the way we look at ourselves. It completely ruins us, doesn't it? Completely humbles us. We clearly see that even at our best, we can never climb out of the pit. We can get all the willpower and all the strength that we want, and we can try to climb out, but we just can never do it. But the gospel also lifts us to the clouds because we see the great mighty arm of God reaching into the pit and pulling us out. Amen? Permanently, listen, the gospel lifts you to the clouds because you see the hero, the Christ, saving you. You know what he does? Hear this, please. He establishes your position as his child. He makes you completely righteous. He delivers you from all the powers of death and hell and all sin and all consequence of sin. Upon your faith in the gospel, you are loved by the Father equal to the love he has for his dear son, Jesus Christ. Imagine that. He loves you the same way he loves Jesus. When you're saved, when you put faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father loves you equal to the love that he has for his uniquely born son, Christ. Wow. You are guaranteed an, an eternal inheritance. And that inheritance is the Lord himself. And it's reserved and held by his omnipotent power and his immutable, unchangeable promise from a God who never changes his mind and never lies. So not only does he say, I got an inheritance for you reserved in heaven, he will never change his mind because he is immutable, but also nothing can get in the way of his power. Nothing can interrupt that. No force outside of himself could stop that from happening. That's who you are in Christ. So courage never can come from within, friends, but it comes from seeing the one who rescued you from yourself. And that leads to our next observation. I already began a little bit talking about it. The gospel shored up Paul's courage, and it will shore up your courage by reminding us who we have become. Who we were, who we are. Who, who, who he became. And who are we in Christ? We are rescued, we are empowered, and we are commissioned. Those three things. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you are rescued, you are empowered, and you are commissioned. We can just kind of say that, meditate on it, and go home. <laughs> That's amazing. We are rescued, empowered, and commissioned. In verse 14, 15, Paul said that he was told, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Paul's sins had been washed away. He had been rescued. He didn't have to climb some high mountain or eat some magic berry or pray some magic incantation. Jesus Christ had died for him in his place. The death he deserved, Jesus Christ died in his place for him. He had been rescued. His search for, for forgiveness was over. Friend, you need to be forgiven? Well, the search is over because you can be forgiven of anything you've ever done by trusting in Jesus Christ. The search is over. His search for significance was over. His need for approval was over. Because it was provided. He had the approval of the creator of all things. He was rescued from godless doom 
that awaited him in the life to come. He was rescued. And that rescue, not only was he rescued, but he was empowered. Paul saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. That's what it says. He saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. The God of his fathers appointed him to know his will in verse 14. And what's that will? The will of God in Christ for Paul and for you, by the way, was that he would be risen to everlasting life. God's will for us as Christians is that we will be risen to everlasting life. Life without end. At the right hand of God, where there are pleasures forevermore. Positioned at his right hand and in his Christ. Appointed to everlasting royalty. This is what scripture says about you as a Christian. That you are a royal priesthood, Peter says. You have royalty in your blood because of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Appointed to everlasting royalty, rulership. You shall reign on the earth, it says in Revelation. You will reign over all living things on this created earth when Christ comes and takes it back. Isn't that incredible? Rulership and joy, everlasting royalty, everlasting rulership, everlasting joy. In perfect relationship with his creator, loving dominion over all restored creation. That's what's your inheritance. That's what's waiting for you, friend. That's where your courage is. You see, you lose courage when you just look at everything else but that. That's when we lose it. Light looking outside of ourselves. That's the gospel that, that can give us great courage in the midst of any trial. It gives us that in incredible ways. It makes all death and all suffering a shadow. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for the Lord my God is with me. I heard a story about Donald Gray Barnhouse. I think I've mentioned this story to you before, but I thought it just applied very well. I heard a story about Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was a very great Presbyterian preacher in the mid 20th century, 1950s is kind of like when he was very popular. His wife um, had died young of cancer. And he had children. I think I believe that he had three children. So his wife dies, and they're just a mess, of course. They're, very, they're grieving. And his children are grieving. And one day they're in the car. They're all taking a ride together. And they were stopped. And he noticed his daughter just kind of sadly gazing out the window. Very sad. And a truck passed by. In the shadow of that truck, very big truck, tr- passed by their car. In the shadow of that truck came over the car. Right? So they, they kind of were in the shadow of the truck. So he looks at his very sad daughter and he says, this is a moment. This is a teaching moment. He says, tell me, sweetheart, would you rather be run over by that truck or run over by its shadow? And she said, well, by... The shadow, I suppose, because it can't hurt you. And he looks at all his kids, and he says, your mother has not been overridden by death, but by the shadow of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. That's your inheritance as a Christian. Death doesn't hit you. The shadow of death hits you. And you know what death is for us? A promotion. 
um, George Herbert, he was a uh, centuries ago, very popular poet, he said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him a gardener. <laughs> Paul said it like this, another way, to live as Christ, to die as gain. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Friends, hope emboldens you. Hope emboldens you. And you know what kind of happens at times in life when this really just kind of shores up your trust and faith in God? It's almost as if suffering brings you joy. Like you're, you're, you, you go through it peacefully because you're so confident in what God has given to you in your life in Christ and what's in store for you and what your hope is in eternal life that you, you're so convinced of it that you know that all crosses, all crucifixions, all deaths, all sufferings are just a shadow. They're gardeners to make you, to bring you to what is your final destination. The wonderful work of Christ can empower us to have a marvelous bravery if we simply look outward to him rather than inward. You want to be brave as a Christian? You want to have courage? You must, you got to see that all the crucifixions of life, all the sufferings of life, and even death itself is a promotion. That's what it is. It's a promotion. Hope emboldens you. And you get that hope by believing only in God, the Christian God, Jesus Christ. He's the only God. He's the only hope. One pastor said, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the greatest act of courage in the history of the world. Isn't that interesting? Jesus Christ, remember this? Right before he's crucified, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to God. He's sweating drops of blood. It's not Jesus saying, hey, I got this. Bring it on, Romans. Right? Like, he's scared. Right? He's nervous. But he says, not, not, not my will, but thy will be done. Why did, and, and why? Why did he do it anyway? Why did he have courage? Why did he do the right thing in spite of the consequences, in spite of the suffering that would, would come? Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he, in, he knew what would be the outcome of it. And the outcome was greater than the sacrifice. You see? There is, the, there, the, and that's it right there. The joy set before him. The joy waiting for him. Even Jesus had to look away from himself, didn't he? The joy set before him. He knew what would happen. The joy in pleasing his father. The joy in saving his friends. The joy in conquering death and Satan. The joy in that. You know that if you're a Christian, no matter what happens to you, look, if, if you're a Christian, no matter what happens to you, you're going to be okay. That's what this means. The worst could happen, and you're going to be okay. Even David, David lost his own little baby. What could be worse than that? And you know what he said? I'll see him again. For the joy set before him, he endured that suffering. <clears throat> One writer said, if you have the joy set before you, you're just going to face what you have to face. You're going to do it. You're going to go through it. You're going to go through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. Paul was rescued. He was empowered. And he was commissioned. 
<clears throat> and now compelled, verse 22 um, of a text that we read um, in some sermons ago, and now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. You remember this? Not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in the that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying the good news of God's grace. There it is. Friends, you know why you were born as a Christian? You know why you were born again? Right there. You have a task. I have a task. We all have a task to testify to the good news of God's grace. Uh, in our text, it said, the God of, an, of our ancestors has appointed you, Paul, Saul. And you know what? The God of our ancestors has appointed us too with a task to testify to the good news of God's grace. You will be his witness to all people in verse 15. Verse 21, he said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. We have a mission. We are commissioned, friends. All of us. And you know what? For Paul, that was his death, death sentence. His commission was his death sentence. But he did it, and because he did it, for the joy set before him, there is a great cloud of witnesses. There is, um, there, is, there is a company in heaven from every tribe and every nation on earth. Because he was faithful and men like him were faithful, heaven will be occupied with all of us and all people from all across this world, just like us, not only in this age, but in the ages to come. Friends, the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, and for the joy set before Paul, he had his hat cut, head cut off. And friends, we got the same commission today. We might not get our heads cut off. We might get our reputations cut off. right? We, we might get our good names cut off. We might get our friends cut off. But, but we have a task to testify of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for every three people that hate us for it, there's going to be one that loves us and loves Jesus for it. And, and forget us, who they love Christ. Amen? So Paul had a commission. That commission was his death sentence. And friends, we should expect no. I know this is maybe not the news you wanted this morning, but we should expect no less. It's our death sentence too, but for the joy set before us. We endure the cross. Where's the missionaries? Where's the pastors? Where are the people, you know, like a hundred years ago, they'd, they'd be moving to China because they wanted them to know Jesus Christ. You know, the American church just doesn't raise up missionaries like it used to. And we need to get back to that, friends. We need to get over ourselves. We need to get over the things that we want, the petty things that out of life, you know, like oh, we want family, white picket family. You know, look, for the joy set, that, that's our death sentence. For the joy set before us. I'm not even trying to say, look, that, that, that those are the things that you have to do to honor and please God. You obey God to the call that he's given you. What about the guy sitting on the side of you on the bus? We're missionaries there too, friends, aren't we? Paul was hated, hunted, beaten, and executed, but his life was worth nothing to him. That, that's it right there. We've got to get to the point where our lives are worth nothing to us. What? Our lives are worth nothing to us? You know, here's the great irony in that. When we, what that means is, our physical lives, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, I want, a, I want a house, I want a family, our lives are worth nothing to us. What our life is worth is following Jesus. No matter what that might mean. No matter what the sacrifice, no matter what the cost. My, our life, and you know what happens? We get everything. <laughs> like, 
we sacrifice for a little while, but then we get everything. He sets us as rulers over all of creation. You know, I'd rather have that than a new Toyota Camry. Right? I worked, you know, like, and, and, and we all have Toyota Camrys out there. I know. It's like a Toyota parking lot out there. I'm not judging you guys. I'm not judging you for having But, right, like, look, friends, we need, to, we need to sacrifice our lives. We need to live lives where we'd say, God, you know, what do you want me? You got me. I'll sacrifice anything for you, no matter what the cost, no matter what it means. His life was worth nothing to him. And because, and you know, you know how we could do that? Because he knew that his life was worth everything to his dad, to his father, his heavenly father. He was able to do what he had been appointed to do. You know, you've been appointed, all of us, to testify the good news of God's grace. That's the commission. You have an appointing. In eternity past, God put you right into, next to that person at Dunkin' Donuts. He put you with the people that you work with. He put you married to the person you're married to with the kids that you have. He appointed you to them. He said, you're my missionary to them. So what are we going to do? I consider my life worth nothing to, to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. So all of the people that are in our lives, God has appointed us to be missionaries to them, to tell them of the grace of God in Christ. Amen? That's, who he's, that's what he's given us to do. To testify Christ. And are we going to do it? Are we going to answer the call? Will we finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given us? The task of testifying the good news of Christ. Let me close. You want to be brave? I want to be brave. And if you want to be brave... You need to know who you are. You need to know who you were. You need to know what you have been saved from. You need to know what God has, God has positioned you in, what's in store for you, the eternal life, your inheritance given to you. You need to know what you've been commissioned to. Your Heavenly Father has promised you and declared you to be great. That's the promise to you. And do you know the joy set before you, friends? And if you don't, or maybe you've just gotten distracted, let's look to Jesus. Let's get reminded. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, that one simple look to Christ will rush back in the joy of salvation in our lives. <clears throat> God, we don't make light of the trials of our lives. We grieve them and sometimes grieve them greatly, but we don't grieve them as those without hope. God, we know that you have commissioned us. We know who you have made us to be. God, we know the great dignity that you've given us. God, help us to be freed from sin. Help us to not be consistently going back to it. Deliver us from its power. You have greater power. And God, I pray that, that we could be inspired by the courage of the Apostle Paul, that we could live our lives as he lived, so that we could finish the race and the task that you've appointed us to to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. God, I pray, Lord, help us to be brave. Take away our sin so that we honor you with our lives and give us great courage. God, we love you. We thank you for this church. If there are people here that don't know Jesus Christ, you can know him this moment by trusting in him as your Savior. You are a sinner, friend. 
Friend, your sin separates you from God. There is a God in heaven. There is a creator. He made you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you so that you could be restored in your relationship to him. And simply believing in him takes away all your sin. That you change your mind about who you are. You change your mind about your sin. You finally recognize that you're broken and lost because of it. But Jesus Christ paid the penalty for you. There isn't some magic prayer or some secret thing that you've got to do. Friend, if you, are, if you are trusting in Christ right now actively, you are, you are saved, friend. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, please come talk to me after church. Don't, don't hesitate a moment. Come talk to me so that we can encourage you in your new faith and baptize you as a Christian. God, we love you. We thank you so much for this time. We pray that you would prepare our hearts now as we take communion. In Christ's name, amen.